Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm David Goldman. I'm one of the deacons here. I'm Zachary Goldman. That is my dad. Happy Father's Day, Dad. Thank you, Zachary. Zachary and I will be reading the scripture verses for today. Uh, they can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Thank you so much. Good morning. On this Father's Day, we've had the opportunity now in these various services this morning to uh, have read to us, uh, I believe, some outstanding fathers who have um, opened up God's word and allowed us to be able to look deeply into what it is we're about to explore this morning. Let's look to our Lord together in prayer. And now, our Father, what we want to do on this Father's Day is to realize that, yes, we are pausing to honor earthly fathers, but simultaneously and most significantly, we are here to honor the Heavenly Father. We are in eternity past the Godhead, the three in one. saw to it to create this world that would eventually fall into sin. And then in the most astounding moment in history, the Father sent the Son into the world to die for our sins. We're awed by this fact. It shows the grace, the love of the Father to us that we would offer his son on our behalf. Now, Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture. It's been read to us, beloved by Jew and Gentile alike throughout the course of time. Pray that we honor you with the way in which we treat this text and how we relate it to our lives, modern day living. So, Father, warm these hearts, engage these minds, 
shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and, and him only. I'm praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. I appreciated what my brother out in Washington sent my way electronically in the past days. A picture arrived on the screen and it was a picture of a, a gentleman who had made his way over from the Scandinavian nations. An immigrant standing on the shoreline with two sons who are holding his hands. The older of the sons, David, holding his right hand. The younger of the two sons, Rodney, holding his left hand. The older of the two sons would eventually find that his father would pass away and that he, Rodney, and five other siblings, seven and all, would, would be placed in an orphanage. The oldest of the sons, David Highlander, my father. What captures my attention as we are looking very carefully at the passage of scripture we're considering this morning is something with regard to what my father was known for at the time of his passing. When I saw this, this image that appeared on the screen of my monitor, I went to the obituary of my father, the funeral that I had the responsibility to officiate. And among other things, as it's written, it says that David was preceded in death by his precious daughter, Caroline. David dearly loved his wife of 66 years, Jeanette Ruth. David was a wonderful husband and father who led an exemplary Christian life. He served in the United States Air Force in the Pacific Theater during World War II. He went on to his master's degree and pursued a doctorate in, in medical research from the University of Illinois. The extended family is listed. And the last paragraph ends by saying that the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren uh, will remember a man who had a passion for higher education, enjoyed a lengthy, successful career in medical research, but most of all, desired to live a life dedicated to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He will be greatly missed. When I juxtapose the image that appeared on the screen, my phone, with the reflections upon the obituary and the funeral that I had to officiate, only to have to do again a few months later for my mother, what I see is an example in that life of Deuteronomy 6, 
being illustrated in such a way that would allow people to see firsthand how, how the passage of Scripture we're examining this morning can be lived out in a way that brings honor and glory to Jesus Christ. I see three significant distinctives in this passage that have a lot to do with the way in which an earthly father is to have a relationship to God, the Heavenly Father, and how this gets projected in the generations to come. Let's check it out together. What I want to do first of all is notice verses 1 down through verse 3. And as you and I, as we consider our Father's relationship to God the Father, I want to begin by noting with you and with one another here what I'm going to call the multi-generational influence that a father is to have. You're going to see why I say that as we dig into this text. Notice how this unfolds. It starts with the word now. Grips your attention. It's going to be very contemporary with you. It's going to be very relevant with you. It's going to apply it into the here and the now of the text. And then when he goes on to say, now is the commandment, what strikes me that the Old Testament written in Hebrew has placed this particular phrase in what is known as the emphatic position. The emphatic position. In essence now, what we're saying is that Moses has something that needs to be emphasized within the extensive family relationships, you see. So we take this very seriously, don't we? He says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. And what seizes your attention, my attention at this moment, is that he uses the word, the name, the term Lord, capital L-O-R-D. This is the relational covenantal name for God the Israelites would know. Knew it in Egypt. Knew it as they were making their way into the wilderness. And now what they desperately need to understand is that this God, this God they serve, is not only the real God, he's a relational God. What I want to say for those that find themselves religiously or spiritually curious, who believe that God is real, but not yet have come to grips with the fact that God is relational, is that God the Father sent his Son into the world to die for your sins and my sins. And the only way to enter into a relationship with God is through the finished work of Jesus Christ whereby we can embrace what's stated by Jesus Christ when he said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. 
And so now what God is doing through Moses is Moses is now taking these words to pen for the sake of the Israelites about to enter into the land of Canaan is to draw out for them that this exclusive God is not only the real God, he is a relational God. They were to find relationship by putting faith and trust in the one promised to come. We find our salvation having put our faith and trust in the one who came. And it's all centered on Jesus and the cross. That the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, he says. And now what I want to do is to begin to draw out very carefully what he wants to say to strike a chord with fatherhood. That you may do them well, do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you, here it comes, and your son, And your son's son. That's multi-generational right there for you. Now, this is a case study. It could also refer to the father and his relationship to his daughters. You, your son, your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I have commanded you, I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Now what the father understands at this point is that when he communicates truth to the next generation, this is not a reservoir, this is a channel. Which means then that the father could very well be saying something that's gonna get passed on to the next generations. That this is like a relay. And the truth is the baton. And the generation that takes the baton is to pass this baton of truth on to still the next generation to come, which means then that words matter. And even when I'm texting my various children around the country in the coming hours, even the words within those texts, they matter. Because you never know, you never know just what is going to be shared with what has just been stated. So hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, we need to go to Israel for just a second, would you? And as we go there, let's look, look at three generations of people who at this point in time are, are stepping out and they're beginning to walk the streets of Israel. And this is a multi-generational father, grandfather, father, son journey. Where are they going? What are they thinking? What's being communicated as they step out of the house? And then we begin to ask ourselves multi-generationally, what's being communicated? What's heard? 
What's going to be carried on on the journey of life that generations to come will have to process when they think about the conversations of what matters most in this dynamic of the earthly father and its relationship to the heavenly father? You're back to the text. And as you get back to the text at this point, you and I enter into something that's extraordinarily important. Because for the Jewish population, they would know the coming verses and refer to this as the Shema. You see how this begins? Hear, O Israel. Now, in Hebrew, these verses are known as the Shema because this is the Hebrew word for hear. And if you've ever been in a synagogue, it could very well be that the Shema, these verses, along with other verses, such as from Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13 through 21, and Numbers 15, verses 37 through 41, that these verses uh, are going to be recited. You're moving now from the multi-generational influence that a father is to have to what I'm going to describe here as the relational guidance that a father is to provide. And so he makes this appeal. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, at this particular moment, what the Israelites would do is they would embrace this and say, okay, we're about to enter into the promised land. It's polytheistic. What he's saying is that our God is one. He is not Baal. He is not Ashtaroth. He is the Lord God, and those other gods are false gods. But what do I say to my Jewish friend who's just emerged from the synagogue? And when they got to the point of the recitation of the Shema, they would shout out the phrase, it's one. How do you incorporate Jesus into that statement? And is this why it was so difficult for people in the day of, of Jesus, earthly ministry, to embrace the fact that he was the Messiah? Well, when the Shema is being recited, and when the word one, the Hebrew word is echad, is shouted out loud, well, we've got to bear in mind at this point is that there are two different words in the Old Testament for the word one. There is yachid, which carries with the idea of a singular unity, which you see in monotheism in the Middle East. But God in his sovereign strategic purposes shows a different word in the Hebrew for the word one. It's echad. And I'll give you two examples of how it's used. In Exodus chapter 26 of verses 6 and 11, when the tabernacle was to be put together, 
Fifty gold clasps were used to hold the curtains together so the tent would be God. One. A unity of one made up of the plurality of the many parts of the tabernacle. When you get to the book of Ezekiel, where we were a couple weeks ago exploring the battle of Gog and Magog, and by the way, Chosen People Ministries has just put out a publication. Gog and Magog is the title of it. The prior chapter to that, Ezekiel 37, the Lord tells Ezekiel to join together two sticks prophetically representing the ten tribes of the north and the two tribes of the south into one, Echad, speaking again of a unity made up of their plurality. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that there's more than one in the one. He, God, deliberately chose what I'll call the plurality of oneness to allow for the idea of the Trinity to be found in that one particular word. This is astounding. It sets you up then for understanding Jesus Christ's claims. I and the Father are one. Now that being said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad, one. What I want you to now see with me, because you're up to verse 5, is the number of times you're going to use these explosive, extraordinary, all-encompassing words unfolding in front of your eyes. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. What God is saying at this point is that he wants the sum total of you. He's not looking for a divided heart. He wants the key to the house of your life. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart which takes me to baseball, of course. And it was 1993, and it was September, and it was a National League race. In the first place, Philadelphia Phillies were doing battle with the second place, Montreal Expos, who later become the Washington Nationals. Two runners on. Eighth inning, a pinch hitter, a rookie, not yet gotten a Major League Baseball hit, sent up the bat, weight on his shoulders. Runners on first and second, Curtis Pride steps into the box, oblivious, it seems, to the noise of the crowd, and on the first pitch, laces a double, Rounds first, arrives at second. Crowd goes crazy. They're playing in Montreal. Third base coach begins to make his way towards second base. 
and he makes a motion for Curtis to take off his helmet and doff his helmet to the crowd, and he does so. And then the third base coach does this and nods his head. What does he mean? When the game is over, reporters gather around Curtis Pride. And Curtis Pride has got one who does sign language standing by his side because Curtis Pride is deaf. He was unable to hear the sound of the crowd and their response to what he had just achieved with his first base hit. One of the reporters working with the one who is specialized in sign language asked Curtis Pride, were you aware of the sound of the crowd? In response, Pride then was able to say, I heard it in my heart. I heard it in my heart. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And so what he wants to say to this earthly father, be so overwhelmed with the grace of God, let the truth of God penetrate your heart so that there's a natural overflow into the next generation of God's grace at work, not only in you, but through you. You back to the text. And you shall teach them. But how do you teach them? The Hebrew word carries with the idea of to cut through, to penetrate, when it says diligently. To your children, you got to be able to cut through the noise of society. And then notice the relational guidance. This is not only multi-generational in 1 through 3. This furthermore is relational in 4 through 9. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And now get this. And picture the, those three generations of Jewish men. They were making their way down the streets. Where are they going? Where are they discussing? And then you read, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. And did you notice with me? Did you notice it? Four times you found the word when. There's a timing issue here. In other words, you are taking the timeless and you're introducing truth in a way that is timely. Know the rhythms of the family. When you love someone, you learn the rhythms of that person's days and weeks and months and years. Work with it. Notice the rhythms. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. And once you're done 
tackling this whole matter of the timing factor. Notice, furthermore, the visibility factor of verse 8 and 9. Where you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, on your gates. Well, we need to see how this looks at the doorpost of the house. Look at the image that appears on the screen. This is known in Israel as the mezuzah. In the box, the box is the mezuzah, is found the Shema that you are studying at this very moment. And here you and I are finding that, that this father has tacked to the doorpost of the house the idea that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Not only are you dealing with the inerrancy of Scripture, you are dealing with the authority of Scripture, and he is claiming that the Scriptures have authority over all that takes place within that house. What's happening at this point? Well, for the one that explores God's word, we understand that this is where the legacy is found. This is where the stories are told. This is how you combine the multi-generational with the relational in a very powerful context. Bill Havens understood that. Now, not many people have heard of Bill Havens, but he became an unlikely hero of sorts among those who knew him best. It was the 1924 Olympics, Paris. And the sport of canoe racing was added to the list of international competitions. The favorite team in the four-man canoe race was the U.S. team. And one member of that team was the young man whose name was Bill Havens. And as the time for the Olympics neared, it became clear that Bill's wife was going to give birth to her first child about the time that the U.S. would be competing in the Paris Games. 1924, no jet airliners to be able to get them from Paris to the U.S., only slow, ongoing ships. So Bill found himself in this kind of dilemma. Should he go to Paris and risk not being at his wife's side when their child was born? Should he withdraw from the team, remain with his family? Bill's wife insisted he go. After all, competing in the Olympics is the culmination of this man's lifelong dream. Bill prayed. He felt conflicted. And after some soul-searching, decided to withdraw from the competition and remain at home where he could support his wife when the child arrived. Turned out, the U.S. four-man canoe team won the gold. Bill's wife was late in giving birth to their child. So late, in fact, Bill could have competed in the event and returned home in time to be with her when she gave birth. And all the people around him said, such shame. But Bill said he had no regrets. He loved the Lord. For the rest of his life, he told people he made the better decision. Not everybody could figure that one out. 
But he acted on what he believed in and poured himself into the next generations. But there's an interesting sequel to the story of Bill Havens. The child eventually born to Bill and his wife was a boy whom they named Frank. 28 years later, in 1952, Bill Havens received a cablegram from Frank. It was sent from Helsinki, Finland, where the 1952 Olympics were held, and the cablegram read, Dad, I won. I'm bringing home the gold medal you lost while waiting for me to be born. You know, when you learn to say a deep, passionate yes to the things that really matter, there's a settled peace that begins to saturate the heart. And you never know what today's decisions will lead in the matter of tomorrow's destinies. It's so true when we consider how the earthly father relates to the heavenly father. Ah, oh, that mezuzah. The father is there tacking it to the doorpost, making an outward statement to the community and making a powerful statement to the family in your comings and goings. It's all about God's word. But one more distinctive, back to the text. And allow for your, your eyes to drift downward to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20 through 25. Because thirdly, what I want you to notice with me here is the essential questions that a father is to address. And here they come at us. Notice the questions. And when your son asks you in time to come, here's the question. What's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Question mark. He's got to answer. Then you shall say to your son, we were... Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and that's God's grace. And you immediately find a way to bring grace into the story of life. Multi-generationally, relationally, essentially, the critical questions. I had to deal with one. I thought I was alone. I was in the back and I had my rickety old ladder leaning against the house. It was time to do some work on the roof. Brought my cell phone with me, it was a Tuesday. I always keep it by my side if I'm needed back at the office, my day off. Go up the ladder, it's squeaking and squealing. I get on the top rung and Leaning on the roof, one leg dangling in midair, 
cell phone now on the roof. I hear this movement from behind me. It's the middle child. The doctor surprised me and he said, Dad, what on earth are you doing? Which is an essential question for the father. And I said, well, hi, son. Um, You're a smart man. I'm dangling from a ladder, cleaning off the roof. And I hear this, (laughs) and he walked away. And within 30 seconds, my phone goes off. And I pick up the phone, still on the top rung, foot dangling in midair. And I recognize the voice, and it's my son from Florida calling and saying, Dad, what are you doing? Get off the ladder. (laughs) Which is an essential question that needs to be answered. And so I dutifully got off the ladder. And on the next day found that there were two new ladders in my, in my shed. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, you better have an answer to the essential question. It's got to be timely and it's got to be timeless, not time bound. Then you, speaking of the Father, shall say to your son, we, now it gets collective, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and now brilliantly this Father's tied together the justice of God and the grace of God which you're able to do at the cross of Jesus Christ where the justice of God comes down upon sin as the grace of God is being extended to the sinner. He brought us out from there that he might bring us in. And that's what your God does. Brought you out to bring you in. And in 24, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God, for our God always, and that he might preserve us alive as we are his to this day. It'll be a righteousness for us if we are to be careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he he commanded us. And when we grasp that, you're able then to nod your head to what the worship team is saying just a bit ago. I've carried a burden for too long on my own. Wasn't created to bear it alone. I hear your invitation to let it all go. Yeah, I see it now. I'm laying it down. I know that I need you. I run to the Father. I fall into grace. I'm done with the hiding. No, no reason to wait. 
My heart needs a surgeon. My soul needs a friend. So I'll run to the Father again and again and again and again. And that's what we do. We come to the Father through the Son and Him alone. Joyful Father's Day. Let's stand together. And so, Father, we pray that we have honored earthly fathers, but our focus of attention is upon the Heavenly Father. We know that there are many whose fathers are no longer with us, near us. Pour your spirit upon such loved ones here in these various services and for those watching online now or in the days weeks to come. But through it all, what we want to do is to be able to understand this extraordinary dynamic of how you've made yourself our Heavenly Father. You have offered your Son to die in our place for our sins. And now we come to the Father through the Son. So you, may you take now these words from your word, press them deeply into our hearts. May we have our own Shema moments. May we have our own metzutzas within our hearts. May the result be, Father, that you're honored. Minister to one and all now, and we give all glory to you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.